Good evening. Tonight's reading is from the Old Testament and can be found in Psalm 84, which you don't have to open your Bible. You can just read it from the bulletin right here. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. In Zion, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. I want to welcome all of you joining us for our service tonight. Um, we're so glad you're here. And uh, if you're new or uh, visiting, uh, we, would want, we want to hear from you. So uh, uh, if you get a chance, please fill out the back of your Keeping Connected form, which is on the back of your bulletin, and uh, let us know who you are and how we can serve you. And uh, if you want to stay uh, after the service to get to know myself or anyone else that you've seen up in the front, we would love for you to come and do that as well. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll dive right in. God, we're grateful that you call us into your presence, that you extend your welcome to us, that we might know in you that we are loved and cherished. But we also know that you call us back into the world to embody, to picture, to demonstrate your gospel, who you are, to be salt and light even in the city. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight as we gather before you, that you would give us open hearts to receive your word, the bread of life, to be encouraged and strengthened so that even as we leave here, that we would do so with a sense of resolve to live for you and for your kingdom to make much known of Christ and his gospel. And we pray that to that end, your spirit will come now and do your work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. There is a famous story about St. Augustine, who, as a troubled teenager, stole pears. He wasn't hungry. He did it because he wanted to. And uh, the fact that it was forbidden made it all the more tempting and appealing. And he would say much later, it was foul. What I did was so bad. And I loved it. I loved my own undoing. St. Augustine's confession challenges the assumption that we are what we think, that knowledge shapes practice. After all, he knew that what he was doing was wrong, and that sort of encouraged him to do it all the more. 
In the same vein, author and thinker James K. Smith, in many of his books, basically rejects the thought that we are what we think. He believes instead that we are what we love, that we are more than just brains on a stick. And when we are honest about the disconnect in our own lives, the difference between thought and practice, it's clear that knowledge alone is insufficient, is it not? It's in our saying. We say it all the time because we heard it all the time growing up. You should know better. See, it's not knowledge but love that forms practice. And Smith goes on to say in his words, Love is like a baseline inclination, a default orientation that generates the choices we make. I think that's really insightful, that it sets the parameter, if you will, how we're going to live, the choices we make based on what we love. In other words, what captures our hearts wins the day. That's what shapes our practice, our habit. Now, why are we talking about this today? That's an important question. As we prepare to launch another ministry year, as we think about what it means to be in and for the city, as we think about not only declaring but demonstrating the beauty of the gospel, we must remember that our mission to be in and for the city begins right here in our hearts. Only as we grow in intimacy with God can we become a compelling community that would be salt and light here in this city. They're not interested in what we say. They're not interested in what we believe, even. They're interested in who we are as a community, especially in a city that is polarized by all kinds of things. Are we able to put all those things aside to gather together in the name of Christ and his gospel, to extend grace and kindness to one another, where we would wrap the towel around our waist to be the first one to serve. That is what the world is looking for. And that is what's going to make the difference in this city. And in order for us to embody that well, we must first and foremost look into our hearts to make sure that our hearts are captivated by the gospel of Christ. That what we do here as a church in the city is not a list of good ideas so that we can feel good about ourselves at the end of the day. No, it's what the gospel compels us to do, to be the hands and feet of Christ. And so with that in mind, let's dive into Psalm 84. And let's allow this psalm, a song of longing to shape our hearts and to compel and propel our mission in this city. We're going to look at two things tonight. First, let's look at longing for Christ. Longing for Christ. Any Harry Potter fans here? Anyone? It's okay, we forgive you. Um, just kidding. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so I, I guess I got to say, sorry, okay, just Coming clean. Uh, in J.K. Rowling's book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry discovers the mirror of Erised. Remember this scene? It's desired spelled backwards, and above the mirror is an inscription that looks like an ancient language, but it's, I show not your face, 
but your heart's desire spelled backwards. Now, not knowing this, Harry stands before the mirror and sees his deceased parents. And so surprised by this happening, he turns and gets his friend Ron to come and meet his parents, at least in the mirror. But when Ron stands before the mirror, he sees himself as Hogwarts' school head boy, where he is tall, handsome, dashing, well-built, chiseled, winning all kinds of awards and being recognized as the man. Professor Dumbledore explains, the mirror shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. If you were to stand before that mirror, what would you see? Maybe a younger, healthier self? Maybe an accomplished future self? Maybe a married self with children? What would you see? The thing is, longing is a common human experience to us all. And it began when we replaced intimacy with God for a lie. Now, outside of Eden, we don't know what to do with our longing. We carry it with us. And every now and then we experience some respite, some relief. But for the most part, it's there. In our insightful article on psychology today, Angie Vates writes, I wonder if I was born with an unmet longing. I don't know where it came from or if it will ever leave. What I do know is I've spent significant portions of my life vacillating between ignoring the unsettling yearning and trying to fill it up. There is no way to solve or satisfy the longing. All of my attempts have failed. My old way was to rush toward the intensity of the sensation with a remedy, a few cocktails, a willingness to be seduced by a person or desired object, and that once that proved empty and faulty, I buried the craving under massive amounts of food until the only solution was to get rid of it. To repent, I starved and ran as far and fast as I could from something that was so a part of me that my attempts were futile. Eventually, I surrendered to the longing. I'm still not sure if something is unmet, unsatisfied, or unrevealed. Time will tell. In the meantime, I breathe into the deep, soulful longing when it shows up. What an accurate picture of where we often find ourselves apart from Christ. The Bible says God has set eternity in our hearts and somehow we resonate with how God created us. You might not believe in God and you might even reject the Christian worldview, but if you're honest with yourself, the very core things that make us human, you can't shake off, can you? A longing for meaning, purpose, beauty, and love. No matter how much you try to rationalize and justify those things, it's there and it lingers. C.S. Lewis suggests that our longing is the distant memory embedded in our humanity. He writes, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images 
of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. For they're not the thing itself. They are, the, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. You hear C.S. Lewis say that God is a thing beneath the thing. The ultimate reality. The source. And all our cravings and longings and however you want to phrase it. It really is a cry for God. And that's why G.K. Chesterton can say, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The psalmist knows, as Augustine later found out, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So he draws our attention to God so that in him we would find what we are looking for and allow the beauty of him and his gospel to capture our hearts. Because if we skip this important first step, as I said before, the mission to be in and for the city becomes a burden. And no matter how much we seek to live that out on our own strength, it will not get done. You and I are not that good. We're not that disciplined. I was reminded of that through my child earlier this week as we were coming up with meal plans for the Park family. The oldest daughter looked at us and said, knowing us, it's not going to last past this week. (laughs) And she's right. If we can't do that with our meal plan, how are we ever going to live up to this grand, grand dream of being the hands and feet of Christ. We need something more. We need something better. We need him. Verse 1 begins, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out, other translations would say, for the living God. The psalmist remembers the temple. He's far away. But it's not just the temple, but it's what the temple represents. The mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the grace manifested through law, through community, through the promise of a better future. All of these things wrap up in one. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place. And he longs to be near the presence of God. So much so that he even envies the birds that nest there. And he longs for God because he knows God is better. Verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand, uh, better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents. Of wickedness. Don't think for a moment that the psalmist is a man of great sacrifice. I would say he is, as John Piper said, a hedonist, following the greatest satisfaction. He does the math one plus one equals, wait, 
And he realizes God and what he offers is far better than what he could find anywhere else. And so he does the most reasonable thing. He has tasted and seen the goodness of God, and he will not trade it for anything else. Just like the man in Matthew 13 who ran into treasure worth far more than anything he owns, he gladly sells everything he has in order to obtain him. Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and following, but whatever gain I had, and he had a lot. His resume was impressive. Lined up to be very successful. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is not only Apostle Paul's testimony, but for all who have tasted and seen the goodness of God. And it only makes sense to let go of the temporary, to hold on to what lasts, the things that only satisfy for a little bit, for the real thing, the source, God himself. You and I, we know this too, don't we? But sometimes it's hard to practice what we know. And that's why we need to let the image of this gospel, the temple and all that it represents, grab a hold of our hearts. How is God better? Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is better because he is the source of life, the sun. And he is the sustainer of that life, shield. And he gives generously to all who would come. He does not meet us with a clipboard to see if we had indeed walk uprightly because we stand in the righteousness of Christ who has. And so as we come clothed in the righteousness of God, oh Christ, God looks at us and he says, good job. And he bestows grace and glory upon us. And this is the good news of Christian gospel. That we don't have to work hard to earn what we cannot earn, but that Christ has done that for us. Again, in verse 11, the Lord bestows favor and honor. In our vocabulary, it means grace and glory. See, God not only delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to forgive us of our sins and to receive us as children, but then he crowns us with glory so that you and I, even right now, would reign at the right hand of God the Father himself in Christ. If we as Christians, if we as God's community could keep this vision before us and allow it to move in our hearts in such a way that it would shape how we live, then and only then can we pray, Lord, Send us out to this city. Help us to be in and for Washington. Help us to enter into the margins, to the broken places, to stand beside those 
who are suffering, who live in fear, who are often overlooked, to listen, to be present. My prayer for us as we look at the few weeks as we will begin our vision brunch and launch the, the ministry officially, my prayer is that we would let this message, let this God shape our hearts and that we would dream together of what that would look like, not only in our own lives, but in this community and our mission to be present, faithfully present here. But as I said, it begins by looking at our hearts first. What has captured your heart? What do you see in the mirror of Erised that you need to bring before God to say, Lord, I know that these are just things. You're the thing beneath the thing, the real stuff, the source, my everything. Help me to hold on to these things even with open hands. What would they be? How do you need to work on your own heart before God? Let's move to our second point, hope in Christ. Even with a joyful and willing disposition to engage the city, we need grace to persevere. I don't know about you, but I'm just not that disciplined. And my daughters know it. They know I need something better if I'm going to persevere. Psalm 84 is a song of hope for pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate the exodus, the great deliverance. But not only that, to look ahead to the great promise of land. Not their physical land, but the land and true rest that awaited them at some point. That's why the author of Hebrew would talk, Hebrews would talk about rest and how we as God's people long for the rest to come. And the Israelites knew this. They knew that Canaan wasn't the end. There was something even better, more glorious that awaited them. And so every year as they traveled to Jerusalem, it was a reminder that they live in between already and not yet. And you thought that was a New Testament concept. Yes, they've received the promised land, but they have, they're still awaiting the promised land to come. And they knew that this journey was not an easy one. Let's look at verse 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Baca in Hebrew means to weep. To weep and speaks to the pain and hardship along the way. But we're not alone. We have this community for one. We have each other. And the great stories that come from community groups and here in this room, all the relationships that have formed over the years is beautiful. God is working through this community. And you have been an agent of blessing to many people. And many have been a blessing to you. And we praise God for that. We're not alone. We have this community. 
but we also have Christ with us. He walks with us through the valley. You see, the Christian God is the only God that dwells in the valley. And he leans in to listen, to learn. Because he already knows our brokenness. He sympathizes with our weakness. And he weeps with us. Because he knows better than you and I that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he has done something about it. He entered in. Into our broken world, into our broken lives with a message of hope. And with a promise that one day he will return to renew all things. And part of that restorative process involves us, the body of Christ. We're not mere puppets or props in this grand story called redemptive history. No, we are agents in God's kingdom. Our faith and faithfulness matter. The kingdom does not hinge upon our faith and faithfulness. Praise God for that. But we actually play a role in what happens in this church, in this city. The details of this are a mystery, but true. Look carefully again at verses 6 and 7. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Who is doing the work? Who is passing through the valley of tears to transform it into springs? Who is going from strength to strength until each appears before God? Us. We are agents in this story. I want you to hear that. Because so often, as we preach grace, and rightfully so, we excuse ourselves from responsibility. But I think that's to miss the function of grace altogether. Grace is what enables, and as we will see, empowers our obedience. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It calls us to be faithful. We are the agents. We are the ones who go through the valley. We are the ones who go from strength to strength. But we do it with borrowed strength. You can't forget verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in Christ. And there's a tension, isn't there? On the one hand, we need to rest well in his grace to receive his strength. But from there, we move into the messy and broken parts of the city to work hard for the kingdom. It's not one or the other, it's both. And that's one of the goals for this Sunday worship as we come together. As a body of Christ, collectively, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Our goal is to be reminded of and to rest in his grace for us so that our hearts will be strengthened as we leave this place and come tomorrow or even this evening. You can engage those whom God has placed in your life 
with grace, with mercy, with love. But how do we rest in this grace? What does that look like? Because to me, rest means you're just lying down. Is that osmosis? You just lie down with the Bible on your heart? Somehow hope that it will make its way into our heart, into our soul to transform us? No. We receive His strength through prayer. Verse 8, Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Prayer makes all the difference. Prayer is what changes our hearts. It's what makes the promises of God come alive and moves us to faith. If you recount all the saints who have gone before us, just think about all those grandparents, uncles and aunts, youth pastors, campus ministers that have really affected your life, role models, if you will. And I'm willing to guess that if there is one common denominator among them all, it is this. Prayer. They devoted themselves to the discipline of prayer. And it is in prayer that we unlock the power of God promised to us. And we receive it into our hearts, into our souls, until we're transformed. There are no substitutes to prayer. Therefore, we as God's people must be diligent in prayer. The Beatitudes in Psalm 84 encourage us to do this, to pray. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Well, how can we ever get there? Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, Lord. Well, how do we receive his strength? Verse 12, blessed is the one who trusts in you, those who pray. The threefold blessings of Psalm 84 rest on prayer. But hear this, God's people. We do not pray alone. It is not our prayer. It is not even our discipline, our devotion or fervor in prayer that unlocks the blessings of God. We dare not stand in our name, in our work. We would only receive judgment. And we all will fall short of the glory of God. But we stand in the name of another, on the merit of another. Verse 9, look on your shield, our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Even David knew that he fell short of God's standard. That he couldn't be the shield for his people. All he has to do is look back and trace The steps that led him to where he is. Yes, there were a few moments where he bravely, courageously stepped up in faith. But there were many moments where he would say, not my best. Not my best. And he knew that we needed a shield from the wrath of God better than himself. And he knew that we needed a Messiah than himself. The anointed one here refers to a better Messiah, better King, Christ himself. 
And God the Father said of him, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, when we come in his name, on his merit, we can be confident that our prayers are heard. You never have to play back your prayer to see if it measures up. Did I use the right vernacular? Was it the right tone? Was it the right length? Did I do this right? And the psalmist here in 84 would say, yeah, because you stand in the righteousness of Christ. You stand on his name, on his merit, and all of your prayers, therefore, are perfect. In fact, the spirit groans, Paul says, with words that we don't understand. And then when it gets to the high priest, Christ himself, he edits our prayers Delete, delete, delete. What he really meant was this. (laughs) And the father says, of course. If we could be confident that we could run to our parents at any moment to know that we would be received, loved, heard, and that they would do everything in their wisdom and power for our good. Jesus says, how much more will your heavenly father When you go and say, God, I need strength. I don't have what it takes to be in and for the city. I see my own shortcoming, my own brokenness, my own hate, my own bias. My desire to walk past the invisible, to pretend that they're not there, to ignore that difficult co-worker was always needy. I can't do it. I can't do it alone. And he says, I can. And he gives us grace. If we understand this reality, our privileged status as children, if we really understand that Christ, our high priest, is even now at the right hand of God praying for us. We should pray more, not less. To join in the work that God is doing. To do our part, not perfectly, but faithfully. As we think ahead to this ministry year, let's dream together of what this church community and the city could be like if we as God's people gathered and committed to praying. Praying as he taught us, may your kingdom come on earth, in D.C., in our church, in our homes, in our workplace. May your kingdom come May your will be done as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and ask that you would help us to believe that you are a good God who delights in your children. That we can come with any request, any time, and know that we are loved. May the image of our good, loving, gracious God move our hearts and reposition us, our hearts, 
so that the choices we make, the plans we plan, in this ministry year will reflect your heart, your kingdom. We pray all this.